0: Let's turn then to the reading of God's Word this morning, to the book of Exodus chapter 7. The book of Exodus chapter 7, as we continue this series of creatures of the Bible, I included a list uh, on the outline of other passages uh, since Genesis 27, where we left off last Sunday evening of other passages where we find References, sometimes small, sometimes uh, uh, a passing note is made. Sometimes uh, it is to indicate a great blessing and grace of God. Sometimes the animals are used in the providences of God uh, as well. And so you see uh, the list that uh, we have put together there. But we're moving on in God's word this morning to Exodus chapter 7. And I'm going to be reading verses 1 through 13 this morning. Let us hear then God's breathed out word to us. And the Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that I command you, and your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of his land. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt, and will bring my host, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. Moses and Aaron did so. They did just as the Lord commanded them. Now Moses was 80 years old, and Aaron was 83 years old when they spoke to Pharaoh. Then the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, When Pharaoh says to you, Prove yourselves by working a miracle, then you shall say to Aaron, Take your staff and cast it down before Pharaoh that it may become a serpent. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded. Aaron cast down his staff before Pharaoh and his servants, and it became a serpent. Then Pharaoh summoned the wise men and the sorcerers, and they, the magicians of Egypt, also did the same by their secret arts. For each man cast down his staff, and they became serpents. But Aaron's staff swallowed up, their staffs. Still Pharaoh's heart was hardened and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. As far as the reading of God's word, I invite you to keep the scriptures open this morning as we'll be referring back to this and numerous other passages this morning also. Let's bow in prayer. Dear Lord, we thank you for these passages that you have given us that we may learn your word. We pray that you'll be with Pastor Bob this morning as he is. Helping us to learn more of the different ways in which you use your nature to teach us, to guide us, and to help those in Israel. We ask for your blessings upon this service as well. In Jesus' name, amen. And amen. So, we want to look at three things this morning from this and from other passages associated with this text this morning. First of all, the enslavement of God's people. Secondly, the idolatry to which they were exposed, and finally, the exodus that God brings about. So the enslavement, the idolatry, and the exodus. First of all, as we think about the circumstances that we are now in, by the time we get to Exodus chapter 7, we learn that the Israelites have been enslaved. As we come to Exodus chapter 12, verse 40, For some 430 years, at least, that's how long they've been in the land of Egypt. That's how long it's been since Jacob moved his family down to Egypt when Joseph was the second in the ruler of command and saying to his father, to his brothers, to the clan, come down to Egypt because the famine is going to last five more years. But they stayed beyond the five years. Much beyond the five years. Much could be said about why it is that they stayed. Obviously, it's in the providences of God, but yet, this is not the command of God to stay. They had it good. Things were well. They had the land of Goshen to live in. Their herds were multiplying. They were growing in number. Why leave? Why go back to the land that God had promised them? Why not stay here in the land of Egypt? Well, those years went by rather swiftly, year after year after year. Pretty soon, the tide changed as far as the feeling of the people of Egypt towards the Israelites. We read that a Pharaoh came into power who did not know of Egypt and what he had done. And that begins. The methodical enslavement of God's people. So much so that as we turn to the opening chapters of the book of Exodus, the people of Israel are crying out to be delivered. The bondage has become so severe. God, in Exodus chapter 3, appoints Moses to be the leader of his people. Exodus chapter 3, verse 10. You will lead my people out. A likely but unlikely character, Moses having been saved from the edict of Pharaoh that all the babies had to be drowned in the Nile by his mother, making a little basket and putting him in the Nile, being rescued by Pharaoh's daughter and then being raised in Pharaoh's household. But having had to have fled Egypt because he killed an Egyptian and Pharaoh is after him. So he goes to the land of Midian and there for 40 years, ten sheep until the burning bush. Moses, you're now to lead my people out. It is no new knowledge or no great revelation that I say to you in, in this picture, in this episode, Moses functions as a type of Christ. Moses is going to be the one through whom God leads his people out, just as Christ is the one through whom God leads us out of the bondage that we are in. For you see, even as God's elect, we enter into this world in bondage. Turn with me, keep your finger here, turn with me to Ephesians chapter 2. And just note how it is that Paul paints that picture for us, that we are like the Israelites of old, are also in a bondage. Ephesians chapter 2. And you were dead in your trespasses in sin, in, what, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Yes, that's the society of a whole here in Exodus. They're all in a sort of bondage, the bondage of the prince of the power of the air, the bondage of Satan, the bondage of sin. But God's elect people, his Israelites, are in that bondage as well. The story of this first part of Exodus is God bringing them out. Paul, in Ephesians chapter 2, is saying that's true of us as believers. We too entered into this world in a bondage. A bondage to passion. A bondage... To our sinful nature. A bondage that held us to Satan himself. But God, like he did in the Old Testament, sent forth a deliverer, Moses, to bring his people out. God, as well, has sent forth another deliverer to bring us as believers out of the bondage that we are in. Pick it up where I left off. Verse 4, Ephesians 2. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. So yes, there is an ongoing picture here of God's people and, and we can't ever look past that. God is foreshadowing the whole of that atonement, the whole of Christ coming, the whole of Christ delivering us in the setting of, of these Israelites. But secondly, I would have you note the idolatry with which we find ourselves when we come to Exodus chapter 7. I am not sure when it began, I'm not sure who began it. Was it Noah's sons who carried on the tradition? Is it after the Tower of Babel that this begins? But some point in time in the history of humanity, these creatures that God had made and formed, these creatures that he had made for his glory became objects of worship. The Egyptians had 2,000 deities that they worshipped. 2,000 gods. Most of them represented in one form or another by one of God's creatures. Or a combination of creatures. Or a combination of one of God's creatures and man. They put it together in all sorts of ways. Created this elaborate pattern by which the creature, not the creator, but the creature now becomes the object of worship. With fancy-filled ideas, with fables about what these creatures could do. Lies that Satan is winding in. The distortion Of God's truth. So that by the time we get to Exodus chapter 7. God's people. These Israelites. Are living in the context. Of all of that idolatry. It surrounds them. It is pervasive. They could not help but see it. They could not help. But watch this worship. And it is no doubt as we trace their history after this exodus that it had an impact upon their lives. That all of that idolatry, that pagan culture, having been there for hundreds and hundreds of years, began to take its toll. And their hearts are no longer devoted to the Lord only. So much so that the first two commandments, when he brings them out of Egypt, is to remind them, I am God alone. Have no other gods beside me. And make nothing in any form, in any likeness of any creature in the heavens above, the earth below, or the waters under the earth. Make no creature by which you seek to worship me. Why did he do that? Because they had lived in it for hundreds of years. This idolatry that covered them. Go with me to Romans chapter 1. Paul, in explaining the culture of his day and of our day, reminds us that this has not changed. We're going to pick it up at verse 18 of Romans chapter 1. For the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. Remember the passage I read as the call to worship? Psalm 19? It's plain. God said, in creation I have made it plain that I exist. God, all nature, sings thy glory. This is my Father's world. The creation is a stamp of God's power and God's divinity. For what can be known, verse 19, about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them, for his invisible attributes, namely, his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. How? In the word? No, Paul says, in the things that have been made. Why is it important for us to pay attention to nature And the creatures that God has made? Because it leaves mankind without excuse. Because God's eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived. Ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images representing what? Mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. The creatures that God has made. See, the point is, we go back to Exodus chapter 7. There's the culture. 2,000 deities worshipped by these Egyptians. And the Israelites are plunked down right in the middle of them. You and I live in a culture of paganism. We do not live in a Christian nation. If we lived in a Christian nation, we would not fall down to the idol of abortion. If we lived in a Christian nation, we would not bow down to the idol of sex. If we lived in a Christian nation, we would not be bowing down to the idol of materialism. If we lived in a Christian nation, God would be glorified. Instead of singing about some flag, we'd be singing, Oh, worship the King all glorious above. you see, we don't live in a Christian nation and we don't live on a Christian continent and we don't live in a Christian world. We live in a pagan environment surrounded by thousands and thousands and thousands of deities. And it is God's desire to call us out of the culture, to call us out of the world, to bring through His Son. Light. So that the New Testament will testify to it as this. Once you were in darkness, but now you live in the light of the world. That's what God is doing as a picture for us in the book of Exodus bringing his people out of the darkness, out of the paganism of an Egyptian society, that they may live in the light of the glory of Christ. It's what he does for us. That's what's going on. That's the picture. Thirdly, then, How does this exodus come about? God says in chapter 7, I'm going to bring them out. Tell Pharaoh, let the people go. Tell Pharaoh, let them go out. But Pharaoh, as we read at the end of the section I just read, hardens his heart and will not let the people go. How does God bring about the exodus? Well, these chapters in the early part of this book tell us he brings them out in two ways. Which is actually only one way. But we'll divide it into two. The first is by God's power. Look with me at Exodus chapter 7, verse 5. God is speaking to Moses, and he says to him this, The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. How is God going to bring them out? When I stretch out my hand. God is going to act. He is going to act decisively. Once again, keep your finger there. Go with me to Deuteronomy chapter 4. Deuteronomy chapter 4. By the time we get to Deuteronomy, they're out. They've wandered. They're about ready to enter The land of Canaan, God's brought them all that way. Moses now comes to them and reminds them of these things. Verse 31 is where we're going to start. Deuteronomy 4, 31. For the Lord your God is a merciful God. He will not leave you or destroy you or forget the covenant with your fathers that he swore to them. For ask now of the days that are past, which were before you since the day that God created man on the earth. And ask from one end of heaven to the other whether such a great thing as this has ever happened or was ever heard of. Did any people ever hear the voice of a God speaking out of the midst of the fire as you have heard and still live? Or has any God ever attempted to go and take a nation for himself from the midst of another nation, by trials, by signs, by wonders, and by war, by a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. He's asking them, he's saying, think back. Think back to your history. All the people, except for Moses and Joshua, most likely Caleb, are the only people who have witnessed What God is about to do. So Moses is saying to them, you're here about entering the promised land. Think back. I want you to remember the account of how God brought you here with his mighty hand, with his outstretched arm. That is is signifying for us the power of God. Go one chapter more. Deuteronomy chapter 5. As God reiterates again. Okay? Okay. Reiterates again those commandments. Chapter 5, verse 15. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt and that the Lord your God brought you out of there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Why do I keep the Sabbath day? Because God brought out not just the people of Israel, but he brought me out from the bondage of sin. That's why I give him the day. That's why you honor the day. Being reminded of the deliverance that God has brought about. How? With his mighty hand. With his outstretched arm. God brings it about. But the means that God uses are these plagues. Over the course of the next several chapters, just page through with me. Chapter 7, 14, the first plague, water turned to blood. Chapter 8, second plague, frogs. I know I mispronounce it, according to some of you. Chapter 8, verse 16, gnats. Chapter 8, verse 20, flies. Chapter 9, Fifth plague, Egyptian livestock die. Chapter 9, 8, boils. Chapter 9, 13, hail. Chapter 10, verse 1, locusts. Chapter 10, verse 21, darkness. And then a final plague threatened, the death of the firstborn. On the back of your sermon outline, We might say, why those plagues? Why why does God do this? Because every single one of those plagues was a direct annihilation of an Egyptian god. These plagues are not a battle. These plagues are not a fight. These plagues are not... Oh, man, they're so strong. Look, there's, God's waging a war and a battle. We don't know the outcome. Yes, we do. Aaron throws down his staff. It becomes a serpent. The Egyptian magicians throw down their staffs. They become serpents. Oh, no. Oh, they're just as powerful. No, Aaron's snake, serpent, destroys theirs. See, in a certain sense, there are no battles with the Lord. There are only victories. That's all the Lord does, is victory after victory after victory. Here are these Egyptians, steeped in this idolatry. God comes, blow after blow after blow, crushing the God of the Egyptians that is represented in that plague. I'm not even going to try to pronounce the name. But you can, okay. But it's clearly evident what God is doing. He is bringing down his hand, his mighty hand, his powerful hand to show to the Egyptians his power. Oh, but it's not just the Egyptians, is it? his people need to learn the lesson too these israelites who have lived within this need to know these gods are nothing these gods are nothing but the fabrication of people's minds i think that that's one of the problems that that we as the church in general have 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 given into We've given too much credence to the other side. We've given too much legitimacy to the other side. we've, We've sort of, well, you know, they can have their say too. Really? Really? Do you really think God wants and desires that other gods are given an equal footing as he is? Do you think that's really what he pleases him? God's going, oh, that's so nice. Those people are so good. Look, they leave a little time for God, but look, they carve out a little niche for Allah. That's so nice of them. And they have some time for those Hindu deities. That's so nice of them. I so enjoy it when my people are so tolerant of other gods. Read The plagues, he crushes. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Those people holding their signs of reproduction rights are nothing but baby killers. They're not pro-choice. They're baby killers. We give so much away. We let our children be instructed in that garbage. Well, the school has to give a certain amount of credence to these things, so there has to be time. We go, well, okay, okay. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. When God led them out of Egypt, do you think God's design now is, you know, if you want to erect a statue of some beetle and worship it, it's fine with me. I'm okay with that. As God leads his people out, do you think God was thinking, you know, I sure hope some of you take the time to allow your children to be instructed in the worship of Ra. You think that's what God desired? Romans chapter 1, this is why the judgment of God comes down upon. This is what leads to all the problems of the society and of the earth around us. Men exchange the truth of God for a lie that somehow other gods are of equal footing. And then the question becomes, and how much effort, how much work are we each doing individually as parents, grandparents, elders, pastors, deacons? How much work are we really doing to make sure that the miseducation of this society is overcome by the truth of God. effort are we really putting into it. We pledge it there. We pledge it at that fountain. We pledge. We'll do all we can. Oh yes. But do we? Personally, do we? Family-wise, do we? Church-wise, do we? Do we do all? Do we can? Do we really want to learn God's truth? Do we really want to deepen our understanding of God? Do we really want to see the victor at work? How does God bring about this exodus? By his power, by his mighty arm, by these ten plagues, right in the face of the Egyptians. How does God bring it about? (laughs) Brings it about by his displayed mercy. Nine times he withdraws the plague. Nine times he takes it away. God not only came with his outstretched arm, his mighty arm, his mighty hand of power, he came with his outstretched hand of love and mercy. Of the plagues that come, the water to blood comes on all, the frogs come on all the gnats come on all but God makes a distinction and it's very clear in Exodus chapter 20 or chapter 8 verses 20 through 22 I make a distinction between my people and the Egyptian yet they suffered three plagues to teach them to remind them thou shalt have no other gods and don't go making an image and bowing down to it And worshiping it. But God had another means, did he not? He has another means of bringing about this exodus. By the time we get to chapter 12, we learn that God's other means is going to be a a year old lamb. There is no deliverance until the lamb is slain. There is no leaving Egypt until the lamb's blood is upon their doorpost. There is no escaping the brutality of Egypt. There is no escaping the slavery until the lamb is selected, killed, There is no freedom until the blood is upon one's doorpost. Only in the death of the Lamb, God's outstretched arm, is their deliverance. This evening, we dig into chapter 12. We see the beauty of how God once again foreshadows this lamb whose blood's on their doorpost to picture for us, to foreshadow for us the deliverance of Christ, of your and my sins. But it needs, He needs the doorpost of our life. There is no salvation. There is no being saved. There is no exodus. There is no rescue. Unless the blood covers our lives. Let's pray. Father, sometimes shake our heads and wonder how did it come that people began to worship the creatures and the creation rather than you? But father when we really look at our own hearts, we oftentimes father see that same thing. Our own fallenness. Our own idolatries. We say as with Calvin, Lord, that our own hearts are nothing but idol factories. We just keep producing thoughts and ideas that are untrue. That come from Satan. Father, like Israelites of old who needed to be taught the reality of who you were and the power of your hand. But who also needed to see the display of your mercy. Who needed to know the blood and the power of that blood. We too, Father, need to come to realize we can't save ourselves. And we can't be saved just because we know that you did some great things in the Bible. It's only, only through the Lamb of God. Only through Jesus Christ. Only through the one, deliverer, that we can be saved, be saved to live for Jesus. One of our hymns reminds us to break down every idol, cast out every foe. Father, that's our prayer this morning. Break down every idol of our heart. Break down that which we lift up and exalt above you so that we might live for Jesus. In his name we pray, God's people say, amen. In the hymn book, number 29,